When I found the first cocoa tree that I encountered was this low-hanging fruit because the, the fruit of the cocoa tree hung from its main trunk. So it was just two, three feet off the ground. When I saw that fruit, I thought I was in fairyland. Basically, I thought, what is this thing? It looks like an oblong pumpkin. It has all these ridges. It looks like a papaya, but it's hard shell. And I thought that was my personal mysterious magic fruit discovery so someone planted it obviously it's someone else's tree but when i discovered it i thought it was my own so i stole the damn fruit <laughs> i stole it. it as a kid i didn't think twice i stole it i really didn't think it was someone else's right i stole it and when i ate the contents of the fruit it was just the most deeply aged memory i have of that age because i thought this was my personal secret that i've discovered something hey everyone Welcome to episode 50, part one of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Ning Geng Ong. Ning is a farmer, chocolate maker, flavor fanatic, and founder of Chocolate Concierge and Culture Cacao, where he makes incredible single-origin Malaysian chocolate. He's involved in the entire process, from growing the cocoa trees he both owns and also from collaborations with indigenous communities like the Samai, the Muan, and the Mia, from harvesting and fermenting to processing to making a wide range of uniquely flavored bonbons, chocolate bars, and bruises and barks. But did you know that Ning was originally a computer science major? And that there is in fact a close relationship between coding and chocolate making. In this episode with Ning, which is split into two parts, You'll hear about how Ning went from coding to chocolate making. In particular, he shares his experiences living with the indigenous communities to better understand them and their cacao growing techniques. And it's a bit of a wild story involving tigers and a murder. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. When you were a child, you were a Boy Scout and you loved the outdoors. Tell us a bit about that. I did love the outdoors and the Boy Scout years of my schooling days are probably the most cherished parts of that period of my life and the friends that I've made during that time and the adventures and the dangers that we've had to find ourselves in and dig ourselves out of are still such great memories for me. You said danger, was it actual danger? Learning knots and finding paw prints and taking expedition and cooking and building stuff and furniture and putting up tents out of material that we find in, in nature. I think we were in an island. I was maybe, gosh, 14, 15 or 16. Someone in the troop was a good friend and we went together with the troop. So maybe 40 of us in total. We were in a, a night patrol. So we would take turns to patrol the area that we are supposed to, to keep watch. And in the dark, I heard from a distant frantic voices. I found out that he was bitten by a snake and he was conscious, but not in a good state because to get to the island, we took a boat. It wasn't somewhere we could just hop in a car and go to a clinic and his parents were notified. So that was kind of scary because Knowing what I know now, the right cause of action would have been to hunt down that snake. Because if it was venomous, it would help greatly to know which snake bit the poor guy. <laughs> and that would avoid him having to be administered the polyvenom antidote rather than one that is more specific. It sounds like you were very independent as a child. So were you also very much influenced by your family business? I believe it was a bakery supply as well. The business started when I was four years old, which meant I was too young to have known the intricacies of how that got set up. But you got to taste imported chocolate. At a very young age, yes. And thanks to the family business. Very grateful, super grateful for that. Do you feel that seeing the fact that your family was running its own thing, that spark an interest in perhaps 
running your own business in the future? Because when you were at A-levels, I noticed that you were the president of Entrepreneurs Club. It's funny you mentioned that because I didn't really hustle during A-levels. The intention has been there to do something rather than not. A-levels was really a short time, actually, at uh, Taylor's. It was a year and a half. So the whole thing passed by with too many priorities, trying to do well, um, trying to make friends. And then before that had any chance to develop, then people were already moving into their unis. So after A-levels, I backpacked for a couple months. And that's what led me to applying to universities in the States, which originally was not the plan. So what was the revelation and what led you to decide you wanted to apply to study Illinois in physics and computer science? I was backpacking in France, Switzerland, Italy, and then the UK. Some of my friends have already started their semester. So that allowed me to visit the campus at the University of Nottingham. And what I observed there was that there were many Asian students and there were numerous Malaysian students. I thought, okay, you know, this doesn't socially seem too different than A-levels and what I've experienced before. And the program was scheduled in such a way, as I understood at the time, that there were very little room or students hardly took the opportunity to take classes that were outside of their program. And I thought, okay, if I can, I would like to be in a position in uni to take classes that were interesting to me rather than just to fulfill a program requirement. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to look somewhere else. And that's when I applied to American universities. So you must have really enjoyed what you were doing because for quite a while you were doing a lot of programming work as well. You were doing web design consulting, you were teaching 3D and application developers. So you must have really enjoyed that side of things. In fact, I did. That part of my life really taught me many things that I still use as a model when I'm running my own business now. For one, I had two amazing bosses because before I graduated, I was a student employee slash intern for both the marketing department. We had a application development, development division under and also instructional technology. When I graduated, the two departments decided to create a position to hire me under. And so that allowed me to work under two separate bosses and two women bosses. But they were, till today, I still look back and use the interactions I've learned then as, as a model to how I want to behave as a supervisor, as a manager, as a boss. Mona Lamontang was the director of marketing. Susan Solly was the director of instructional technology. And Mona always referred to everyone on the team as her colleague. I've always felt that we were a team and that just allowed me to pour my heart into whatever I was doing. I mean, granted, I was young. I was probably not every day the most motivated employee. But when I think back of my time there, I only have fondness. And Susan just allowed me a lot of freedom to decide how to pursue certain objectives. When I ended my stay in Illinois, at the time I stayed between, I was working in this town called Romeoville. When I tell people this, they say, oh, is that such a town? Town is Romeoville and the next town is Joliet. I'm not making this up. Joliet spelled J-O-L-I-E-T. So it's Romeo and Joliet. So I spent close to 10 years there. And immediately I can remember Route 66, 55. So my mind map is still there. And when I came back to Malaysia, I started off with this ideal of idea rather of how workplace interaction, communication, hierarchy expectations are, which made me walk into walls a lot of times because I wasn't in a workplace with Western culture. Two, 
it Asian, but then it's the worst kind of Asian business to work in, which is a family business. And it's my family's business. I think I went from one spectrum in terms of how things ran to the complete opposite of how things ran in a sense that there were a lot of ideas that the people on the ground were not expected to have. In fact, the expectation was that they do what they're told rather than to come up with their own ways, which didn't sit very well with me. And I'm trying to, until today, be cognizant of the fact that if I hand off a project, so it's something that I'm aware, it's something that I want to empower the team to have, although it may not be innately expected of an organization when they're working here, to empower them to decide the minor things, but hold them accountable to the final results. Another thing that was quite a cultural contrast was just ideas. I felt that when subordinates were asked in a meeting to brainstorm, people just shut down. They're not really expressing their thoughts. And I think some of the reason for that is because a lot of times they feel that their ideas will not go anywhere, will not go far. So they're not willing to invest in that. Also, I think there is this schooling that has not encouraged that as well for anyone to speak up. During my time, I was in a class of 50-something students. So the teacher can't really have the time to go to each one of them and say, how do you feel about this? You know, what are your thoughts about this? And so on. And it's pretty much classroom management by the way of a strong fist. Do as I say or else. And that, after years, I think has an impact on how people then behave when they are made to think and to, to respond rather than have information just given to them and, and expect instructions to be given and handed and for them just to execute. Clearly, you know, the culture was so different from what you were expecting and used to in the States. And I wonder because of that, that you felt that maybe you wanted to do something of your own and you started exploring and trying to say, make your own meat or beer or cheese. Was that what set you off on that path? I find tremendous fulfillment in going deep into something. So fermentation was something that I thought, wow, it's fascinating. Fermentation has parallels with programming. Fermentation is when microorganisms, either yeast, bacteria, or mold, act on an ingredient and transform it through metabolic processes. And you have an output that is very different transformed due to the process of fermentation and taste, smell, and has a texture that's very different from the starting point. And I look at these microorganisms as robots. In programming, we have bots. What we do is we set the initial variables, okay? V equals whatever, run for how many loop, or when certain conditions are met, then that's when you exit the loop or you terminate or you move to the next phase and so on and so forth. And I look at fermentation as being that, if you set the conditions correctly, it's repeatable. It's work that's done by microorganisms, which meant that you could just leave it and come back to it. And the thing is transformed, be it honey to mead or unfermented cocoa beans to something that's closer to chocolate, not quite yet chocolate, but somewhere there, soybean to mirin or soy sauce or tempeh. So really exciting idea. The more I found out, the more I realized that a lot of the foods that we enjoy go through some form of enzymatic transformation or fermentation. Coffees, teas, wines, beer for sure, and chocolate. And when I wanted to do something and totally geek out, I thought of, hey, so chocolate is one thing that unified a lot of my life's interests and consolidated what I thought I could be spending my time in a meaningful way and also a way to contribute somehow at the time when I started because of the family business being available at the time for me to taste the different chocolates that were made from different countries out of beans that were grown out of different countries. It really set a stage for me to, to build on and I took it initially as just a side project. Very early on, I made chocolate out of a home kitchen just as one would start, say, a home brewery or microbrewery, because at the time, internet was booming with a lot of information about home brewing and at the same time, chocolate making. There were a number of forums, two that comes to mind are 
John Dancy's Chocolate Alchemy and this Chocolate Life from Clay Gordon. So these two places provided a lot of information, enough for me to pursue chocolate making with tools that were and equipment that were inexpensive, readily available, and just allowed me to start by having and access to beans because at the time being interested in things like coffee and teas and understanding what the impact of region Taiwan origin has on flavor since Malaysia has a lot of growing conditions that are favorable to cocoa we have a number of trees that were planted around the kitchen that made chocolate that produced the beans that allowed me to experiment in a very very small way just under two kilos worth at a time and to make that chocolate in a very crude way. At the time when I made that first batch of chocolate and I thought, wow, this chocolate is amazing. It's made so crudely, but this whole time, I've always thought of chocolate as a black box. You buy it in a bar, you peel open the wrap, you have no idea how it got onto the shelves, what kind of process the cocoa beans need to go through in order to end up as being a chocolate. So when I first experienced that transformation, I was simply blown away. Then I realized that this is the experience of almost 500 to 1,000 other chocolate makers around the world. They make a chocolate really crudely, they take a bite and realize, man, this is the next best thing in the world. And then they're egged on by their friends and family and say, hey, you know, this chocolate, your chocolate is great. Why don't you go into business? You know, years in, the chocolate making part is the easiest thing to get right. You really can't fudge it up. The hard part is running it as a business. <laughs> the hard part is the HR, is the accounts, it's taxes, finance, hiring, business license, food safety, sourcing, purchasing, accounts payable, delivery, logistics. This is the other stuff that they don't say, people who, who tell you, hey, hey, it's a great idea to start a business. They don't tell you, look out for this, whatever you want to sell, right? If you're selling donuts, you make a donut, let's say you make a, salad, a loaf of sourdough bread at home and your friend and family are nothing but supportive like this is the best sourdough bread but then they don't tell you when you go into business hey what talk for <laughs> these 101 things you know that that's from a thousand paper cuts you have a great product but that's not what a successful business can depend on solely you have a successful product then there's this thousand other pieces of puzzle that needs to fall into place before it can get somewhere before reality set in and you were, oh my gosh, this is magical and amazing. Was it that first batch that allowed you to decide that chocolate is what I wanted to do? Because as you said, you really deep dive into what you're exploring. You went and got a certificate of the sommelier. You really deep dive with so many different things like beer and coffee. So what allowed chocolate to really, really stand up from everything else you're pursuing? I've always enjoyed the experience of things. The experience of understanding something in depth, the experience of having contact with colors, flavors, textures, taste. And I'm curious in that way. So you're right, I, I did take a introductory level to the Cots of Somalia, which is a wine professional certificate. And I'm not from that industry, but having gone through that to deepen my appreciation for what a glass or a bottle holds. And part of that process was to blind taste a series of whites, a series of reds, and call out the vintage to within a year, make a guess onto the variety, the region. And I thought, how is this even possible? It's not a multiple choice question. The possibilities are endless. But later on, I, I appreciated that if you follow a certain method, you could come to a pretty good guess. And I've taken that idea to other foods and beverages that I've encountered, teas and coffees, green teas, matcha, which I'm starting to find an appreciation for, and also chocolate. And it's this contact of when the, the taste receptors hit whatever... I'm trying to taste, be it chocolate. That's when the magic takes place. This is what all the work that has been done before a bar of chocolate becomes a bar of chocolate. This is where it shines. This is where it shows. You can tell the greatest story, but when they say when the rubber hits the road, if it doesn't deliver, then the most wonderful story is just going to fall flat. For me, chocolate was important and significant because first it can grow in Malaysia. And for me, that tied with my appreciation for nature, for things that can grow, the trees, the plants. So 
something that fruits and flower, something that is grown from the earth. And then I thought it's particularly interesting because I recall when I was a kid living in Subang Jaya, SS14 at the time. And no one nowadays believed me when I said that Subang Jaya had large swath of palm oil estate. And it's like, no way, you know, do you mean like further down in Shalang? I said, no, no, no. Subang Jaya, SS14, across the monsoon, it was like just palm oil estate. And I remember this very vivid, so I was quite a lonesome kid, latchkey kid, and I would take strolls in the palm oil estate alone. Don't recommend this for kids, by the way, don't do this. Don't do as I did, kids. When I found the first cocoa tree that I encountered was these low-hanging fruit, because the, the fruit of the cocoa tree hung from its main trunk. So it was just two, three feet off the ground. When I saw that fruit, I thought I was in fairyland. Basically, I thought, what is this thing? It looks like an oblong pumpkin. It has all these ridges. It looks like a papaya, but it's hard shelled. And I thought that was my personal, mysterious magic fruit discovery. So someone planted it, obviously. It's someone else's tree. But when I discovered it, I thought it was my own. So I stole the damn fruit. <laughs> I stole it. it. As a kid, I didn't think twice. I stole it. I really didn't think it was someone else's, right? I stole it. And when I ate the contents of the fruit, it was just the most deeply aged memory I have of that age. Because I thought this was my personal secret, that I've discovered something. Obviously, later on, when I showed my friends the fruit tree, they're like, oh, yeah, this is cocoa. You know, someone else planted it. There's another one just down there and all that. So I'm like, oh, okay, okay. So it's not such a big deal after all. But for me, that was a big deal. So I kept this memory of my first contact of the cocoa. And I think it was special for me. I read that case that you're talking about. It's like a cross between sour soap and mangosteen, right? It's sour soap, mangosteen, rambutan, longan, and a bit of unicorn, to be honest. <laughs> unicorn milk. <laughs> but I think it was more significant for me because it was my personal discovery. No one showed it to me and I chanced upon it. You know, when you're reading a novel, you've transported to this place and time that is so mysterious or magical. And that's how it was for me. But also at the time when I jumped in deep in the chocolate, I thought that it was just so weird that of all the chocolate origins that I've tasted, Costa Rica, the Venezuelan, the Madagascan, Ecuador, Victorian, Ghanaian. Being in Malaysia, the logical question was, where is the Malaysian origin? And at a time when I was asking this question, I couldn't find anyone who was making it. I made calls to a number of chocolate makers. Nothing. The dialogue usually was, hi, I'm looking to um, buy some dark chocolate. Do you make and supply chocolate? Yes. Okay. Are you making this chocolate in Malaysia? Yes. Oh, fantastic. Do you know the origins of where these ingredients that you're using to make the chocolate, where are they grown? Yes, we do know. Well, is it Malaysian? Some of it, but not all of it. So, and then I'm like, okay, do you have a product that's 100% that's Malaysian? And it's usually at this point, you get a resounding no. So later on, I found out why, because a lot of the chocolate makers actually don't start from the beans. They start from liquor. It's already grounded up at the place of origin, usually Africa that supplies 75% of the world's cocoa. And if they use Malaysian beans, it's usually a brand because the supply wasn't a lot. A lot of beans were still coming from Indonesia. So Indonesian beans were invariably used because of accessibility, pricing. And so to scratch that itch, having just been through sommelier course and understood how coffee tastes like, you know, from Kenya to Papua New Guinea to Panama, I'm like, I must taste some Malaysian chocolate. And to scratch that itch, I learned how to make chocolate to personally scratch that itch. That was the first step into that rabbit hole. To set the context a little bit for those who don't know, back in 1990s, Malaysia was actually one of the top three in the world who produced cocoa. And that's in terms of volume, yeah, and then right. it just fell off the scale. It's like from 100%, now we have less than 99 point something percent of the growth have just been converted to something else, mostly palm. But in the case of Pahang, it's now durian, mostly. All these places that were planting durian now, it's making a killing. Rewind that 25 years ago, all of that was cocoa. For such a state like Pahang, it was having so much cocoa that rivaled East Malaysia. So that obsession with taste that you said, is that? Why I'm going to assume that right from the very start, you were obsessed with creating this single origin flavor that you are so known for. 
the yeah. session was more out of a curiosity. I just wanted to experience it. If it's good, if it's bad, I just wanted to know firsthand. But no one could tell me how it was. The textbook answer is oh, Malaysian cocoa or chocolate is sour or it's acrid or it's not good. But when pressed, like, okay, fine, give me it and I will form my own opinion on it. No one could produce the bar. That's how it got started. Hey, come on, someone give me a damn Malaysian bar. And since no one could, then okay, roll up my sleeves. And how hard could it be to make a bar of chocolate? So you roll up your sleeve. Can you give us a sleeve note version of what the process is for creating that chocolate? And then we can deep dive into each of those stages. Basically, you have cocoa beans that are fermented and dried. That's your starting point. Okay. If you yeah. don't own a farm, you get cocoa beans that are fermented and dried at the farm. Once you have that, it's roasted. Once it's roasted, it's like a peanut. You remove the shell. You grind the contents of the cocoa beans, which we call nips. If you want sugar, you add sugar. If you want maybe vanilla, I don't use that, or milk powder to make milk chocolate, you add that in. And at that point, it's just a matter of refining it to a particle size that is not detectable on the human palate. Once you do that, you can use a pistol and mortar if you have the time and the energy. If not, you automate that. You can get pretty far with a blender, but not all the way into it. What we would consider conventionally as a chocolate. But the flavors are there. If you just put sugar and roasted cocoa beans into a blender and just blend it together, you get the idea of a chocolate without necessarily the texture. That's it. Just two ingredients. I'll give you the recipe. You know, 30% sugar, 70% cocoa nibs in a blender. You have That makes a 70% dark chocolate. Forget about tempering, forget about molding. Just pour that into a, a shallow plate, stick into the fridge when it solidifies. That's chocolate, guys. You often joke about how if you want to make anything from scratch, you start with creating the universe. Yeah, that's a Carl Sagan joke. A lot of times I chuckle when another artisanal maker, say, make their soy sauce or tempeh or tofu or tofu fa from scratch. What do you mean by from scratch, guys? I mean, are you planting, are you planting your soybeans? Are you doing that? Are you breeding the genetics that goes into that? Or if you want to start from the very beginning, it's the start of the universe. That's when things started to, as we know it, fall into place. One of the very first things that you were struggling with, as I understand, was finding good, reliable cocoa beans. And you were struggling for six years to find this. Why was it so difficult? This is where I'm going to borrow again from my computer science background. Data scientists know this. Garbage in, garbage out. So to begin with the best possible ingredient is important if you want to express the full potential of a certain flavor that is present in the beans. And for a long time, that was a problem for me when I wanted to make more chocolate. Basically, I just wanted to make more than the 10 trees could afford me in terms of how many fruits or beans that I could harvest out of 10 trees. The challenge then was to get a reliable supply. And to solve that problem, later on, I found out it was a great idea. So to solve that problem, I enrolled myself in a Kusus Asas Penanaman Cocoa, which is a cocoa board basic introductory course to cocoa planting or cocoa plantation. I was there with a notepad and a pen and I, I was the networking guy there. I was there just to take down names phone numbers, and then call these farmers up because I wanted to see if I could visit their cocoa farm and get my hands on more cocoa beans. So that was my initial intention, which I successfully did. After the course, I called up a number of these farmers and I said, yeah, I'd like to see your plot. And I went out there, wow, beautiful trees, going great. And when they presented me with the beans, a lot of them were not fermented or were not correctly fermented because the beans in Malaysia are bought by middlemen who really didn't care much about the flavor or the aroma of the beans. And so the farmers were not incentivized to pay more attention since they're not incentivized to do that. So whatever that they were fermenting worked. If it smells great, great. If it doesn't, if it smells bad, who cares? It still fetches the same amount of uh, per kilo. But when I did find the farmers that were fermenting it at the time for me was did a pretty good job. So I got a sample, but when I placed an order, I was horrified to find that the sample which I encountered at the farm did not match in terms of characteristic or property to the order when it was fulfilled. And after having experienced two or 
three of these failures, meaning I got a sample that was great. And then when I ordered, I got something totally different. I wised up and I thought, okay, if I wanted to make more chocolate at the time, it was still a side hustle. I just wanted to make more. Basically, I needed to be able to control the fermentation. And that meant I would need access to an area that I could process cocoa beans. And that's when I started to look for a way to do that, which meant at the time buying into a farm in Pahang, which was close to a number of areas that were still growing cocoa. Is this the one where you end up partnering with Kong Wang and Kevin as well? Because I thought it was very intriguing that you would start Culture Cacao. It has a very kind vision, vision in the sense that you want to give back to society, which is very different from someone who, if I have a side hustle, I want to make money, I'm going to focus just on profits. But you were clearly thinking of a bigger picture then. And I wonder what was driving all that. Yeah, so I met Kong Wing and subsequently Kevin because they have a plot in Pahang and they had cocoa on the plot. So when we met, I said, I'm looking for a plot, preferably with cocoa already growing on it, and preferably somewhere I could ferment and dry beans. Things just came together. Kong Wing is someone who clued me in, who sparked my interest in giving back to the community. So he's a community leader. He's involved in a Oran Asli boarding school that is situated minutes away from our farm. It's Samoa in just north of Tras between Bentong and Raup. It became something that was natural and a way for the initiative to be more than just a business we felt it wasn't one way at all. To have this perspective of wanting to take care of the community and the environment just resonated with the three of us at the farm level. And this later on translated into Chocolate Concierge also interested to pursue an environmental cause and a community cause and wanting to formulate that into the core of the business so that as the business grew, so would our contribution into these two areas. What I love is that when you are interested in something, you really go in depth and you weren't just coming in and saying, I'm going to help this brand athlete. You really tried to understand where they were coming from. You spent a week with them just to see how they were harvesting. What were some of the main takeaways that you had from just spending time with, I think, the Samai in Shamai, right? Yeah, it's a Samai community. Initially, it was such a cool idea that I thought, okay, I'm going to spend a week with these guys. What also drove me to do that was when I saw these cocoa beans coming out from the Samai settlement. And I thought, wow, how are these guys able to grow cocoa without any pesticides, as they told me? And year after year, the pesticide report comes back with no pesticides residual detected, non-detected. So this confirms that they aren't using any pesticides. And I share these with the farmers that I before met. I say, hey, guys, do you know that you're on us, they are farming cocoa and they're successful, they can get a yield without using pesticides? It's like, no one believed me. It's like the boy who called the emperor naked. And the response I got was varied, but it was more like, hey, you know, they are spraying when you leave. Or another farmer told me that, oh, they are starting fires at the perimeter of the area. All of these are just fantastical imagination because the Oranasli are so minimalistic in their farming approach. They are very efficient with their time. <laughs> so they, they spend very little time to get a lot done. And so they're not spraying. There is no agriculture store, pesticide store that is within traveling distance from the village, which is an hour and a half in from the main road. And if they have money, they're not going to spend it on that. We know that. And they're not starting fires because it's often one guy running an area that is two, three acres. And if it's in the evening, he's not going to go around and starting fire. That's just not realistic. So... I wanted to find out firsthand, how are they able to do that? So that was one of my very important mission to understand how is this even possible? So I started a checklist at a time. I thought, okay, I'm going to go visit. So each household has two to three acres that they manage, which the community I lived with had durian, mangosteen, petai, betel. They had jackfruit, vegetables, but a lot of it was semi-wild. It wasn't cultivated. It was just whatever that grew. I drew up a list of factors that I wanted to check what was allowing cocoa to grow in a way that is successful 
yet pesticide free. So one I looked at, was it the altitude? Was it the soil nutrition? Was it the genetics of the cocoa? Was it whatever they were co-planting with? In other words, what's the biodiversity around the area? Was it their farm management system? Were they pruning excessively? Are they clearing the land? What's the planting distance and so on? So I pretty much checked each one of them and came down to the realization that it was only biodiversity that was the factor that allowed cocoa to grow without pesticides. And when I discovered that for myself, then it became obvious later on that when I'm reading about other crops as well, they are doing very well when it's not just a monocrop or monoculture, when there's intercropping, the pest pressures were relieved or lowered and fruit forest and I start learning about permaculture and fruit forests and agroforestry, then examples of people having succeeded in one way or another across different continents allow me to have this realization that I would like to pursue this in the plot that I'm managing. This realization really started when I spent a week with the settlement and my host was Abu. There was no TV at the time. There was no cell phone data. So at night after dinner, he hosted me. Before I went in, I had to get the agreement of the village chief, the Batin. So I asked, hey, you know, do I have the permission to come and spend a week? And he's like, okay, yeah. So Abu is my uncle. He'll host you. His wife will cook and you can sleep in this area. And I was like, sweet. So I came back two weeks later and met Abu. And when I came in, I brought the chicken. I brought things that I thought would be my contribution towards the meal that didn't last the whole week, but we ate whatever that we could within the first two days. And then after that was where it got interesting. <laughs> so when we exhausted the chicken, that's when the meals became really interesting. So in our morning walks, it's like, okay, you know, what do you want? It's like, okay, what's on the menu? And I learned a number of words in the Semai language. So come here is Chek Mate. Some words seem very familiar because it's got like either Hokkien or Malay sounding words that similar like to eat together is Chak Sama. Chak Sama. So it's unfamiliar but familiar. And uh, so in the morning we would discuss, okay, what would we cook? And Abu is the one who would cook together with his wife. So in the morning, we're like, okay, let's get some taro shoots. And then he would go to the river and he would pluck some turmeric. He would have a lot of leaves, a lot of vegetables, but always rice. They love their teas too sweet. So I don't drink the teas, but the rest of it is just fantastic. Just these different herbs that I would never otherwise have experienced, like samomo. And later on, I had to find out what the Malay term was for each one of these samomo in Sema language was mung When I came out and I told the chef, I said, have you experienced mung mung? Like, what? Then I realized, then I went to send a photo and later realized, oh, in Malay, it's a mumuk. Then people could understand what I was talking about. There's a lot of ulam and a lot of highly seasonal, but uh, super interesting. So in the morning, we would walk the area and he would just slash. And it was Abu followed by his dog. And then I would follow behind the dog. So... <laughs> The trio, a lot of times, the dog would sometimes lead Abu or would fall back behind Abu, but I would always be the last one. So doing that for a number of days allowed me to better understand how it, it was managed and how it was possible. Also, gave me a glimpse into what life was truly outside the city. And although we all consider ourselves, hey, you know, they're Asian, we're Asian, but culture that couldn't be further away from our own in terms of how they view possession what is their relationship to each other? Because in the settlement, they're all related in one way or another. And also the tremendous stories that I thought really should be going into a book. So Abu in his lifetime has killed two tigers Whoa. with traps. So he goes into the jungle and he set a number of traps. And these traps would get whatever comes in that way. He taught me how to set such a trap. I mean, he wouldn't even teach his, his second son because it's a real serious trap, but he taught me, he showed me how to set a trap. The amount of force that you can put into such a trap, it's spring-loaded by three branches that are two inches thick at least, and it would be loaded. It takes an adult to load one, to spring one branch, but there would be three. And such a spring, if sprung, I mean, such a trap would kill an elephant if an elephant went into it. It would just die on the spot because there's no way these 
spikes go through, they would break bones. So they won't go anywhere. If the trap is sprung, the animal will be there. So not by choice, but he's killed two tigers. And he's lamenting to me because now that he knows the price of a tiger, what a tiger would fetch would be in the hundreds of thousands, you know, every part of the tiger. By the time the road wasn't accessible and the villagers brought the tiger back into the village and they ate it. They ate it like any other meat. So the old village had tiger meat. But to just listen to stories like that, and it, it, it's a very different life they live. He has seven surviving children, but he's fathered a dozen, and some of them didn't make it. But it's just this attitude of accepting the hand that life has dealt him. And another experience that I thought was valuable to me was so... There was someone that he's been warning me about in the village because he's known to be a thief stealing from others. And it was during durian season and I timed my stay to coincide with the durian season. I mean, purposefully because I was after, you know, this fantastic fresh durian that's not from the farm. And so we know that this certain individual would steal other people's durian and sell it as though it's his own. And such a morning, we saw this individual coming from the direction of Abu's land. And so Abu with his parang at behind his back greeted the guys like, hi, how are you? How, what are you doing here? How are you? you know, how are things? And he's like, oh, nothing. All is good. And him carrying two handful of durian, all right? It doesn't get more red-handed than that. But anyway, he just answers like, doesn't skip a beat. He's just answering like, oh yeah, life is all right. You know, this and that. And is like, what are you doing here? <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, I saw two rats and I chased it and they led me to your land and they, they ran away and now I'm leaving. And he walks away with the Duran. And I'm witnessing this with utter disbelief. And after the guy left, I tap Abu on the shoulder. And I said, like, Abu, you know, those are your Duran, right? And I was like, yeah, those are my dear. And I said, well, weren't you going to do anything? And to this day, how Abu answered me would stay with me. It's like, yes, those were my dear. But he needed them more. And I still have trees that will give me more dear. later today, tomorrow and beyond. So it's okay if he gets the five, six, five or six fruits that he can carry with him because he needs them more. So that kind of one sentence wisdom and just the forgiveness is something that to this day, it's a model that I can't yet live up to. That forgiveness is just because our sense of possession is so black and white. What's mine? What's yours? And it's drawn so clearly. I think it's very humbling that just so happens that the trees grew on my land doesn't mean that the fruits can't be shared. And I, and I think I'm still learning that lesson. I'm very hung up on forgiveness. I, I don't think it comes naturally to me. I'm, I'm one where I do remember everyone who's crossed me and to observe the, the opposite. But it's this and that because he might be very forgiving in this, but then he's petty. The semi-culture is one where they can be very petty as well. So it's not something that can be summarized with just saying that, oh, they have this folk wisdom that we must learn from. For example, if I came in with a donation of rice or crows, I must be very careful to both give it to Abu because he was my host, but also to the button because he's the button. If I missed anyone, then there would be very bad blood. There would be politics. There was one time I paid the button to cater to a group of visitors who were interested in learning about cocoa and how agroforestry with cocoa looked like. So I paid a small sum. And then he got in trouble with his uncle, which is Abu, because Abu thought that he kept most of the money to himself and didn't spread to the village. But I paid him for the meal that he catered to me. I had to clarify with Abu, say, I only paid him a certain amount and this was for the food. But to have to navigate through that is a lesson that is valuable when I'm continuously growing a relationship with the Oranasi who we work with to grow the cocoa that we transport to our farm ferment, dry, and is made into the chocolate. And we credit the Oranasi for the chocolate that is made from their cocoa. If we're working with three communities, if it's the semi, the chocolate will be called, the first word of it will be semi, not dark chocolate or 100% whatever. The first word of it would be semi to, to, to credit the community who's growing it. Then the other two communities are the Temuan and the Temia. I love the fact that, you know, there are people who live by such different values and cultures and expectations. And it sounds very much like 
they are very self-sufficient. So going in, you know, experiencing, seeing their lives, how did you feel that you could contribute? Because you end up deciding to give them like bananas and organic fertilizers, right? For free to help them. So how did you decide, you know, how to start that? Because you don't have any contract with them as well, which is a very unusual arrangement to come to. From the start, it was out of sheer goodwill to not want them to feel in any way that they can only supply us. If the bananas go to maturity, and we actually gave out more banana trees than cocoa in our assistant program. So we really did want to help. But there were a lot of lessons learned with regard to that. For example, if we just gave trees, if just too many trees and they can't plant it in time, they would just let the trees wither. So later on, we learned that lesson. So rather than just giving trees, I would then organize volunteer planting programs. So we would go in, we would give the trees, but and we'll also help them plant it. So all the trees would be planted in the ground and we'll have a better chance at surviving into adulthood. So that's just something that we tweaked because week after week, we went to the village like, what are you doing with all these trees that we've given you? I mean, we paid for these trees, you know? It didn't come free. It came from nursery and we spent hundreds of thousands in procuring these trees. And well, they're just busy. You know what you're going to do? I'm busy. You know, they have a household to provide and they have short-term or seasonal work, the patriarch. So they're doing plantation work, construction work, or some other work. And so they don't have the time to plant the trees. Later on, we realized that, yeah, rather than, you know, just giving the trees wasn't good enough. We had to ensure that they are planted as well. So after they have planted and they've harvested, I believe that's when you come in and you pay three times the market value to have those kind of cocoa pots. In the beginning, the price for the wet cocoa beans when i say wet so this is to denote that it's unfermented and fresh the price that was published and on offer by the middleman was 60 cents a kilo on the first day we paid 250 so we went from the market rate at 60 cents to 250 and now it's improved now it's up to three ringgit will be increasing to 350 because we operate from a very different model in that we weren't just going to pay five cents more in order to secure the supply. We wanted a price whereby Y250 was because the dried beans were offered to be purchased by third party at around six ringgit, under seven ringgit. And the conversion was three to one or three times. Meaning if I started out with three kilos of fresh beans, wet unfermented beans, when it's dried, I would end up with one kilo. It meant if I paid 250 for each of the kilo of wet beans, that one kilo of dried earned them 750. And that distinction from day one was important for us to signal to them that had they fermented and dried their beans, they would have gotten a lower price. So if they did more work, they would have gotten a lower price. So we wanted to immediately remove this hesitation, which was, I'm only getting X amount, but if I have time and if I did more to it, I'll get a higher price. When they're dealing with us, if they brought it all the way to dry, they would have gotten less. But what I didn't think of was that that was not intuitive to them. They couldn't see that 250 at unfermented and fresh was a better deal and was worth three times more when it was dried. They couldn't see that. They couldn't visualize that conversion. And so what it took for them to get on board was basically we had to have the Lumbaga Coco, someone they trust as an official because it's a governmental body which gave them a lot of assistance in the past. Basically, the Lumbaga Coco official had to show up at the village and look these guys in the eyes and say, sell to Ning, sell to this Toke because he's giving you a price that is unbelievable and no one else is paying you this price. If you sold it dry, you don't even get this price, sell it to him. And that was basically the visa. <laughs> So I thought I was embarking on a certain direction, but reality was quite different. And I had to do a few of these in, in, in navigating. Another one was coming from this mindset of excellence, having visited the winery in Margaret River in France and looking at how they are growing their grapes, the vineyard, how well managed it is. And I and envisioned how cocoa should be procured, you know, the kind of quality, you know, I, I thought absolutely triple A, 
flawless, great cocoa. So initially when I dealt with the, the first community I dealt with were the term ones, I told them exactly what I was thinking. This cocoa is not good enough because it's got moldy beans in it. These moldy beans should have been separated, not been piled together with all the good ones. These ones are too old. These are too dry. These are half eaten. You should leave it out. So I basically told them the grade I was willing to accept. The next trip when I went in, no one wanted to sell to me. So I knocked on the same doors and the guy comes out, open the, opens the window, looks at me with a big smile on the face. I said, hey, what happened to the cocoa? Are you not selling cocoa to me today? boss. Now look around me, all these trees were laden with foods just hanging there ripe, ready to be picked. I'm like, what about these? You know, like right in front of your window. I mean, you can't hide. It's obvious as day. What about these fruits? I said, as far as my eyes can see, I can see all the fruit. So I stepped on a few feet the trip before and I realized that the way forward was even if it wasn't the quality I wanted, if it's still salvageable, I would still pay them. And if it's really not salvageable, I would still pay them and then discard. And that was necessary for the relationship um, that everyone, regardless of the quality of the beans, had to be paid. And that was the cost of working with that community. I had to adapt rather than insisting on doing things my way when I was dealing with this community. Do you ever feel like you wanted to just say, forget it? I mean, if you're being so difficult, I'm trying to help you and you don't want me to help you, forget it. I'll just run my own farm because I have them anyway. And I'll do it to the level of perfection that I want. You know, that never crossed my mind. But there is another level of detachment, which is arm's length. At one time, I got so involved because I stayed with Abu and all that I was getting roped into the village's politics. The village chief at the time was reported to have committed murder. And so there was an investigation into him because there was a certain individual that was a missing person. And he got really ugly. And then he was expelled from the village who so had to move up, up river. I'm getting both sides of the story. And this was with the two government coming in place, but they each had their own party. And I had to put a stop into that. I said, okay, look, look, I appreciate all that we've done, but you have to deal with these situations. I mean, I got really involved at the time. I was buying medicine for different individuals, for the village chief. Every time I go in, I knew exactly when his medicine would run out. But I had to instill an arm's length, which is, I'm not your mother. This is a business transaction. I don't owe you anything more than the money I put into your hands. And you don't owe me anything more than the cocoa that you deliver. So after a few times of this, I think it's now at a healthy distance, the relationship that I have with this very specific kampong. But I had to extricate myself from that. And that was the end of part one of episode 50. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothisismywife.com forward slash 50 one. Alongside a link to subscribe to this podcast weekly newsletter. If you want to find out how the rest of Ning's journey goes, check back this Wednesday for part two. We cover the process of making chocolate from beans that have been fermented for up to 71 days. How he creates uniquely flavored chocolate like Asam Laksa and Nasi Krabu. Advice for aspiring chocolate makers. Honestly, anyone can do it at home. And finally, the flavors he would recommend people ask from Chocolate Concierge. Want to hear how Ning's story continues? Check back this Wednesday for part two.